We're in James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. True faith is observable. If you would, stand for reading of the Word of God. We honor God by standing when we read His Word. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by his works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Whereas the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. This is the word of God. Please be seated. True faith is observable. You can actually see it. That's what James is talking about here. The theme of James is... Genuine faith produces genuine works. Okay, your turn. Genuine faith produces genuine works. Good job. Last time we met, we talked about we had to be careful with favoritism, careful with prejudice, careful with face-looking. So many times in our culture, we are face-lookers. We prejudge before we know what a person is really, really is about. Do not be a face-looker. Peter, the apostle Peter, was a face-looker. Remember, he was prejudiced against the Gentiles. And Jews actually look at Gentiles as being dogs, as being very inferior to the, to, to the Jews. But God straightened him out. And in Cornelius' house, he saw a vision, and he, was, he saw that the Jews and the Gentiles were equal at the foot of the cross, equal. And he said in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Peter opened his mouth. Now remember, whenever you're confronting prejudice, you must open your mouth. You must participate and say, hey, that's wrong. Peter opened his mouth and said in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. He shows no favoritism. God is not prejudiced. That is an essential thing to remember. Now, there was an example in the Old Testament of the prophet Samuel being a face looker. Did you know that? When he went to Jesse's house and he was looking for the king, the new king of Israel, and he went to Jesse's house, and the first guy comes across the stage. He has seven sons, and the first guy comes across, and he's a big, strapping, handsome guy, and his name was Eliab, and he says, oh, that must be the guy. And you know what? But the Lord said to Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but oh, the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the character. The Lord looks at the inner man. That's what we want to look at. Man makes uninformed judgments all the time by the way people look, by their color, by their social status, by their physical appearance and the externals. And God looks at the heart. And I will tell you folks, we are all equal before God. 
There is no one that is superior, no one that is inferior. We are equal in the family of God. Now, what will help you to not be a face looker? I don't know if you remember this from last time, but in verse 8, it was the royal law of love. And he was, he was quoting Leviticus 19, verse 8. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said this when he was confronted by a scribe and a bunch of Pharisees when they came up to Jesus and said, what is the most important law, Jesus? And Jesus summed up the whole Ten Commandments in Matthew chapter 22, verse 39, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. By this, all the law and the prophets are summed up in these commandments. So the royal law of love. Jesus' last commandment, he gave a new commandment in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, just before he was going to the cross. Now, just before you die, you say something, the most significant things that you're going to say. Well, he said this, a new command I give to you, disciples, and by extension, the whole body of Christ. A new command I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. In this way, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. It will be observable. If you love one another, it will be observable. That's what he's saying here. Remember, God is bigger than your prejudice. Do not be a face looker and careful with prejudging. Prejudging. People say all the time, we're talking about faith and true faith being observable. We're going to segue into that. People say all the time, I believe I have faith. And James says this, oh, really? If you have faith, it must be observable something that people can see. There must be evidence. This week, we're going to be talking about true faith is observable. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. Holy Spirit, I ask that you'll do your work in each one of our hearts as we hear your word today. Lord, take the, take the, the scales off our eyes. Take the blinders off. Soften our hearts, and may we hear what the Spirit has to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wanted to just, just show you a slide here. The first slide here is Christianity is observable. And it's Luke chapter 6, verse 46. And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I speak? That's a great question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I speak? God who created the expanse of the universe. I want you to think about this. Our God is a giant God. Our God and his creation created all of us and everything that you see, and way beyond what you can see. Now, there's going to be a slide that comes up here on the universe, and I want you to notice the expanse of the universe, the amazing expanse. The belief that God created the universe, it's 13.75 billion light years across. Those numbers are incomprehensible. Those numbers are so vast we cannot conjure up in our minds what that really means, how, how vast it is. There are 200 billion galaxies. Each one contains an average of more than 200 billion stars, so he could have a personal relationship with you. God, who created everything, is outside of this, of, of this sphere of his creation. He is outside of this. He is spaceless, timeless, immaterial, all-powerful, and relational. And he wants to have a relationship with people. That's what he did. Jesus left heaven. He left heaven. He left the, the, the triunity of the Godhead to be one of us, a mere human. And he came here not just to 
walk around as a king, but come as a servant and to die for each one of us that we might be able to live with him forever. That's what he did. His love for us was observable. Now, in in return, he asks that our faith in him be observable. Someone once said that faith is like calories. You can't see them, but you can always see their results. Isn't that the truth? The major theme resonating through James's letter is faith. You must be able to see someone's faith. And he says it no more passionately anywhere in Scripture than we see it in these verses today, in these verses 14 through 26. Martin Luther struggled with the book of James. You know, Martin Luther was the great reformer, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Sola gracia, alone grace. Sola fide, alone faith. Sola Christus, alone Christ. That was his, that's what he hammered through. He said this epistle was a straw epistle that should be thrown into the Rhine River. You know why? Because he, he, he saw it as conflicting with what Paul taught, and it's not true. James' emphasis is on justification by works, and he thought that this was blatant heresy. Blatant heresy. Remember, James and Paul are really not contradictory. James and Paul are really complementary, not contradictory. How do I know that? Because in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, we see Paul's words, By grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. That is salvation at its base level. And then he goes on to say, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, after you're saved, after you're saved. They're actually complementary, not contradictory, Paul and and James. James and Paul are starting at a different point. Paul is looking at the initial step in salvation, salvation by grace through faith. James is picking it up after a person is saved. They must look different than before they were saved. They must have something that demonstrates that something really came into their lives. You know, Paul, when, 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 when you look at Paul's justification by by grace through faith in Christ alone, that is, that is a subjective change in a person. Something has happened within your spirit, and you know that something is different. He's looking at that level of change in the person. That is subjective. Romans 8.16 says this, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. So you have that subjective, I know that I'm saved, I know this happened to me. James is looking at it from a more objective viewpoint. If you say that something has really happened in your heart, then it must be demonstrated in your life. That is the difference. That is the difference. Paul is very much in agreement with James because he says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, that means you're saved, been born again, okay? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He is new. He experienced the new birth. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. That's observable. Paul is agreeing with James. He's not disagreeing with James. Do James and Paul contradict one another? No way. The difference between James and Paul is a difference in starting point. The difference between James and Paul is a difference in starting point. Paul starts with the great basic fact of forgiveness of God, which no man can earn or deserve. That is where he starts. James starts with the professing Christian and insists that a man must prove his Christianity by his works. We are not saved by deeds. 
We are not saved by works. It is by grace. But these two twins of say of salvation by grace through faith and works are truth, are both twin truths of Christianity. And I think Paul would agree with this. Paul would agree with this. The question is, is, is your faith observable? Can you see a difference in your life? And can anyone else see a difference in your life since you came to the Savior? That's the question. Now, one person wrote this about faith. Now, we know that faith is being sure of what you hope for, certain of what you can't see, Hebrews chapter, chapter 11, okay? But one person wrote this, and I think this is very good. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of consequence. Oh, there's a big consequence for many people throughout the world that say, I have faith in Jesus. It's very safe here. But throughout the rest of the world, it's not so safe. James starts with a question. What does it profit, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? That We're going to segue into verses 14 through 17. Your profession versus your practice. Verse 14, verse, verse seven, excuse me, verse 14 through 17. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can I'm going to say, can that faith save him? In the, in the NIV, it says, can such faith save him? In the Amplified, it says, can that faith save him? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, I want you to realize James says this three times in these short few verses. He says it in verse 17, verse 20, and verse 26. Faith without works is dead. Now, when the Holy Spirit wants to get your attention, now the Holy Spirit is the one that really authored this, and James is just speaking through the power of the Holy Spirit as he pens this. If the Holy Spirit wants to get your attention, he will say something twice. He said this three times. Three times. You think he wants to get your attention? You bet he wants to get your attention. He wants to get your attention desperately. So James is not being politically correct here. He's not being sensitive, seeker sensitive. He's not warm and fuzzy with his, with his text. James does not put up with lip service Christianity. He will not put up with that. Words without deeds Christianity. Can, he, he says, can that faith save you? Is salvation words only, or does it involve a changed life? And, and James does not stutter with this. He is absolutely vehement about your life will be changed if you are really a Christ follower. So, James's example. Genuine faith will not be indifferent to the world that is around you. Remember James's audience. These are persecuted Christians. They're running for their lives. Most of them have left everything behind them. So they have needs. They have needs. They, they're destitute of food, clothing, be warm, be sheltered. People need help at different times, particularly when they're persecuted and running for their life. I want to give you a couple examples of what observable faith might look like in, this, in the world around us, okay? The first one is going to be a, a, what's happening in a church in China. 
a church in China. It'll come up on the screen. And what you're going to see here are Chinese Christians that are being observed by the police in their worship session. Now, these people are practicing obeying in spite of a consequence that they might experience if they get turned in by one of the other. Now, look at the guy with the crossed arms. Isn't he really into it? The, play, the guy against the wall. He doesn't want to hear anything about this, but these people on this floor, they have true observable faith. They will express their faith in spite of the consequences that they may experience. I want to show you the next picture, the next picture. Now, this is very common in China, and I will suggest to you this is very common throughout the world. And I want you to observe something here, something very unusual. You see everyone here with their Bibles open. You see everyone in that picture with a pen in their hand, paper writing. Every one of the heads are down. They are studying. There is no one. I can't believe. When is this thing going to be over? Somebody's talking to them in the front. They're, they're, there's somebody that's leading this whole thing. These people are engaged. This is quite different. This is observable faith. This is observable faith. Now, when a brethren has a need, Christianese will not work. When these people have a need, Christianese, somebody say, I'll pray for you. I'll pray. Now, prayer is great. We want to pray for people, but we also want to be involved with people. And if you, don't, if you can feed them, if you can clothe them, if you can help them in some way, he's talking about the brethren, the people in the body of Christ that have needs. And we are to engage and to help those people. James says, if you don't do this, if you're using Christianese, just using the language, he calls this in verse 17, dead faith. And again, it can be called lip service Christianity. These are persecuted, displaced Christians, desperate need of help. Survival is at stake. The brethren are called to help the brethren. That is, empty platitudes will not work. When you need food, it's great that somebody prays for you, but man, you need someone to bring you a sandwich, okay? That's the case. Now, I'm going to show you the next slide. Now, the next one's going to show what we see many times in the Western church. You will see people jumping up and down in worship, and there's nothing wrong with worshiping God. Nothing wrong. But what happens is, as people get in their minds, this is what faith is all about. I jump up and down, I scream and yell, lights, action, camera, roll them, that sort of thing. The New Yorker has written this about contemporary, the contemporary Christian church, and it says this. This is the New Yorker magazine. There's a cartoon in it. They call the, the Western church the light church. There's 24% fewer commitments. It's the home of the 7.5% tie, the 15-minute servant, and the 45 minutes of worship. There's only eight commandments. You choose which one you like. There's only three spiritual laws instead of four spiritual laws. It's everything that you want in a church and less. Now, look, that is what's happened in the West, not just America, but in Australia, in Europe, that sort of thing. The church is very different here than it is in other parts of the world, very different. Some churches have striven for comfort, but with no quickening of the conscience, no feeding of the mind, no opening of the heart, no commitment, no real faith. Isn't that something? That's happening all around us. That's happening all around us. James is not alone in saying this. Real faith involvement is not exclusive to James. Here, the Apostle John. 
The Apostle John in, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 and 18 says this, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Your profession of faith is never more evident than you when, when you really help the brethren in need. The question is, is, is your faith observable? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. In verse 18 through 20, it's, it, we're going to see it's not faith or works. It's not either or, but it is both. It is both. Verse 18 through 20. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. He has a hypothetical person that he's talking to here. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? That's the second time you've heard it in these short few verses. One man has faith. You have faith, verse 18. That's how I am. I'm a faither. I'm just a faither. I'm not a worker. I'm a faither. That's all I do is I just walk around and I have a lot of faith. And you have, conversely, you have the guy that says, I'm a worker. I'm not a faither. I just do all the work, okay? James says, oh, no, I will show you faith by my works. And that show means bring to light, display, exhibit. It is not either or. It is both. Your works demonstrate true faith. Your works demonstrate true faith. Like love and marriage, you need faith and works. They go together. Isn't that something? If you really want to have a marriage, faith and works go together just like love and marriage. Chuck Swindoll has this to say. Some might argue, however, there are all kinds of Christians. Some have the gift of works. Others are quiet and never displaying their faith. But that's like saying some people have the gift of breathing and others don't. We delude ourselves if we think it doesn't matter whether we evidence our faith or not. James' whole point here, if it doesn't show, you don't have it. Isn't that sobering? That is sobering. Uh, and he's, he's, he's meaning for it to be sobering. He's not holding anything back. He's telling us the truth. James' example is this. You believe, you have faith that there is one God. Now, he's talking to a Jewish audience. And a Jewish audience, when you say there is one God, their mind is going to go automatically back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, the Shema. Shema means hearing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And that's what they will think about. That is orthodox belief. Now, watch this. Watch this. That will not that will not matter, this orthodox belief, if you do not put that belief into action. That is what he's going to say here. Because even the demons believe there is one God, and what do they do? They tremble. Now, they're not believing in God for salvation, but they have orthodox belief. They know Jesus came to this earth. When he confronted the demons, the demons knew exactly who he was. A lot of humans just rejected. But the demons knew. The demons knew very well. Even the demons have orthodox doctrine. They knew who God is, and they are lost. They are lost. 
Demons have no works or evidence of faith in, in God. Demons believe, and they are not savable. Only humans are savable. Some people believe, and they think that that's all they have to do. I believe. I have mental assent that Jesus came, he died on a cross, he was buried, he rose again from the dead. I believe that happened. But something happens between there and receiving it into the heart of the person. There's a whole bunch of folks like that, that I believe in Jesus, but they have no evidence in their life. There hasn't been a transfer from the brain into the heart, into the receiving aspect of it. He says in verse 20, for those who do not have faith that is, that is walked out, O foolish man, faith without works is dead like dead demon faith. William Barclay has this to say. It's tempting to divide men into two classes. The saints who spend life secluded on their knees in constant devotion and toilers who labor. Martin Luther had a friend in the Reformation, another monk. And that monk agreed with Luther about the need for the Reformation. And that monk and Luther agreed that that monk would pray and that Luther would go out and do the work. This is what happened after the arrangement was made. While he was praying for success of Luther's laborers, one night the monk had a dream. In it, he saw a single reaper engaged in the impossible task of reaping in, in an immense field by himself. The lonely reaper turned his head towards the monk, and when he saw his face, it was the face of Martin Luther. And at that point, he knew that he must leave his cell and his prayers and go to help. It is, of course, true that there are some who, because of age, are bodily can't participate. But man, if you can participate, you must. And this monk got involved in Luther's, in, in, in Luther's uh, plight. It's not faith or works. It's not faith or works. It's not either or, but it's both. Listen to John Calvin on this. Listen to John Calvin. It, it's faith alone that justifies. We agree with that. But faith that justifies is never alone. That's John Calvin. There must be some evidence that you're really in this family. Genuine faith produces genuine works. Faith and works are complementary, not contradictory. Verse 21 through 25, he's going to give an example. He's going to give an example of Abraham and Rahab. They had observable faith. Let's, let's read it. Verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him, it was credited to him, it was imputed to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Now, I'd like you to turn to Genesis chapter 22. And we're going to see just very quickly this, this sacrifice. Now, as you're turning, this. Please listen. Abraham is the father of the Jews. He's the greatest of the great of the Jews. 
Rahab was a pagan prostitute, the lowest of the low. But she became the mother of Boaz, who was in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So she had greatness. Both demonstrated, both evidenced true saving faith by their works. Now, I want to emphasize uh, Abraham and Isaac here. I'll just briefly mention Rahab. But I want to show you a slide, a slide here of what this might look like. Now, the only thing here that I don't think is really accurate is that little guy up there looks like he's about 13 or something. I believe that Isaac was about 30 years old. And it's a picture of, of, of Christ, okay, being sacrificed. So with that stated, Abraham obeyed God and was willing to offer his son. Now, if you go back to chapter 22 in Genesis, we'll pick up the narrative in verse 1. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Here I am. He knew the voice of God. And then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. Now, look, at, I, want to, I want you to remember that Abraham waited till age 100 to have Isaac through Sarah. Sarah was 90. This was an impossible situation humanly, but it was a miracle of God. God can do anything. God can do anything. And he calls him his only son, although he had another son through Hagar called Ishmael. Hagar was the Egyptian maidservant. That one wasn't to be part of the lineage of Christ, so he wasn't counted as far as as far as this is concerned, in the eyes of God. Take your son, your only son, just like the only son came and died for the sins of the world. This is a picture for us. And so he's going to go to Moriah, which is where the temple is, and offer a burnt offering, an olah, a completely consumed offering. He was going to slit the throat of his son, and he was going to burn him completely to ashes. That's what an olah is. Complete dedication to God is what that, that sacrifice is. So what does he do? Abraham doesn't argue. Abraham doesn't say, what in the world are you doing, God? He immediately gets up and he starts on his journey. So a couple guys go with him and Isaac, and they have the wood, and they have the stuff that, for, the, for the sacrifice, and they're on their way going. And then Isaac comes up with this question, where is the sacrifice, Dad? And then Abraham says, God will supply, will supply the sacrifice. Abraham knowingly is going to go sacrifice his son. And if you pick, up the, pick it up in verse 9, then they came to the place which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, 30-year-old guy being bound by a 100-year-old guy. Isaac knew what was going on by this point. Isaac knew that he was the sacrifice. And the sacrifice is bound just like Jesus was bound on the cross. This is a picture of Jesus on the cross, okay, being bound. And he laid him on the altar upon the wood, and Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son, and then Jesus intervenes. The angel of the Lord, in verse 11, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, can you imagine the, the intensity of those words? Abraham, stop. Abraham, stop. And Abraham says, here I am. Here I am. Okay, I'm ready for that. And he said, do not lay the hand on the lad. Do anything to him, for I now know, now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. He was going to sacrifice his only son, just like God sacrificed his only sons for the sins of the world. And Abraham lifts up his eyes as a ram in the thicket, and that's going to be the, 
burnt offering that as a replacement. Pick it up in verse 17. He says this, Blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply your descendants. Obedience precedes blessing. Obedience precedes blessing. You want to lead a blessed life, you must lead an obedient life. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as, and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. And then he says this, these words, in your seed singular, talking about Messiah who is to come, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed my voice. Obedience precedes blessings. Obedience precedes blessings. Then we have Rahab the harlot. In Joshua chapter 2, very briefly, I won't spend much time there. She's visited by two spies. They're spying out Jericho. The Jewish people are going to conquer the city of Jericho, an impenetrable fortress. And she risked her life by hiding these spies. And in Joshua chapter 6, her life is spared with her family that were with her. She had faith believing, Abraham faith believing, both demonstrated faith in God by their works. These two examples show that faith and deeds are not opposite. They are, in fact, inseparable. Genuine faith is, is inseparable from works. Both of these are sides of the belief coin. Believing and faith and works are both sides of the truth coin. And remember, even demons believe and shudder, but they are not saved. They have no genuine faith, and they have no genuine works. That is dead faith. Dead faith. Finally, in verse 26 in James, we see these words. James is going to get a summary statement in verse 26. Whereas the body without the spirit is dead, no life. So faith without works is dead also, no life, not genuine. Now, the body without the spirit, again, is dead. Why? Because Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, his sin was imputed or credited to every human that lives. Every human born into the world is born with original sin. And that sin separates us from God, and we are called dead in our trespasses and sins. If you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. Until someone is born again, that's why we use the term born again, their dead spirit has to be given life by believing in the Lord Jesus. And when I say believe, it means this. It is not mental assent. The word believe, Pistis means commit to, put your trust in, follow. That is a whole different thing than say, I believe, committing to, put your trust in, and follow. Now, everyone born into the world is born dead in their spirits. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead, no life separated from God. And then he goes on to say these words, in, in which you once walked. See, if you once walked one way and you are walking a different way now, that's observable. Someone's going to see that. 
You hear this. This is important. According to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, you were, all humans are under the, under the control of Satan until they are extracted from the kingdom of darkness. And the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, that's all unsaved people, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves. We were observed to be part of the kingdom of darkness. But now that we have been extracted out of it, we are observed to be part of the kingdom of light. There's a difference. We were caught in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, that craving desires that we have within ourselves. That has to be put to death. And of the mind, the whole battle is in the mind, the dionea, the intelligence. And we're by nature children of wrath, just as the others. All people born into the world who reject Jesus Christ, who say, I will not take God's love sacrifice. I refuse that sacrifice. All humans who refuse and reject, and this isn't just one rejection. This is like over and over and over and over and over. God comes and he comes and he comes. I'm real, I'm real, I'm real. Believe my son, I want to have a relationship with you. I want you to live with me forever. And it's spurned and it's spurned and it's straight arm, stiff arm, push away. Until there comes a point where God says, okay, you can have your way. All those people are under wrath. See, when we say we're saved, we're saved to heaven and we're saved from the wrath of God and eternal separation from God forever. That's what he's talking about here. And then he says this, oh, verse 4, the rescue verse, but God, who is rich in mercy, that is our God. He is a merciful God. He comes over and over. He pleads with people. Do I have any, any pleasure that the wicked should perish, he says in Isaiah 18. Turn and live. Turn and live. Do not go that way. It might be Ezekiel 18, but anyway, he says those words. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And watch what happens after you're saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know where you are right now, according to God? You are in heaven. You are before him. Your position is before him. You are in the heavenly places right now. You just haven't made it there yet. That's our position. That is our position in Christ. How did we get there? Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved, that is the subject of this verse, saved, through faith, not of yourselves. You brought nothing into this. We bring nothing to the picture. This is a work of God in us, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is a gift that he gives humanity, not of works lest any should boast. And then he says this, for those who are saved, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should carry this out. He's talking about salvation and then actually living it out, living it out. That's what he's talking about here. As our spirits are dead until given life by faith in Christ, so our faith without works is a dead faith. Is a dead faith. How important is that? Remember, James is not saying that our salvation is dependent on our works. He is not saying that. The Bible cannot contradict itself. He is only questioning those who say that 
They are Christians, but whose lives never show evidence of the claim. Sobering. Sobering. In conclusion, true faith is observable. Would you agree? True faith is observable. When what, you, what you've heard here today in the Word, it's observable. It is. Now, these are just my thoughts. Just, 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 just for a second here. Western Christianity, to me, is an enigma. It's a riddle. It's confusing. It's confusing. The all-about-me salvation, we're taking over the country. We're taking over the world. We're taking over all the systems in the world. We want the Holy Spirit to get drunk in the Spirit, laugh in the Spirit, have a giddy feeling, feel something. That's Western Christianity. That's Western Christianity. The early church was all about Jesus, His will and His way. Suffering and sacrifice were the norm, not the exception. Remember the audience in James. These are persecuted Christians. These people are running for their lives. That's the audience that he's talking to. Christians today know little about suffering, sacrifice, and service. The rest of the world knows, but the West believes that it's all about me, that it's all about me. I am the center of everything. Just bless me, God, and just let me go. And the rest of the world, the rest of the Christian world believes in service, service, sacrifice, and if need be, die for the faith. If need be, suffer the consequences for your faith. That's the rest of the world. That's the little Chinese church there. That's the Muslims who came out of Islam and are now Christians that are hiding in Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan and all over the world that are now worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ in secret. They will die for their faith as those Egyptians did when they were lined up on that, on that riverbed and you saw them on the TV and their throats were slit because they said, I am a Christ follower, I will not recant. That's the Christians that we're talking about. Remember, we're not saved by works, but for works. We are not saved by works, but for works. Paul and James would agree on this. Paul's emphasis, and just a reminder, is on the initial saving faith, saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We are saved when we believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins. When we receive the gift of salvation, transfer it from just a mental ascent to a heart reception, to a heart reception. We're saved by grace through faith when I receive the gift. A person's life is truly committed to Christ. If they are truly saved, their life will be changed. At some level, your life will be changed. It might be slow, but this is the expectation. This is the norm, not the exception. This is the expectation for true Christians. James comes at it from a little different perspective. James' emphasis is on saving faith will produce good works. James and Paul are complementary, not contradictory. Con complementary. James focuses on genuine saving faith will produce good works. James cannot stand a profession of faith without real practice of your faith. That is what he's saying. That's the Holy Spirit actually working through James. Genuine faith does not exist in a vacuum. It will produce good works. Faith like calories cannot be seen. But James says that you can always see the results. Just examine your life for just a second. What do you see in your life? and these characteristics of faith. Faith is involved, not simply empty platitudes. 
Faith is involved. Faith is a partnership with works. Faith is a partnership. Faith is displayed, is observable. And faith is from the heart, is yours. How do you meet the standard here? And finally, the greatest observable trait of a Christian, if you want people to really see that you're different, the greatest observable faith of a Christian is love for the brethren. Remember that. It's love for the brethren. Jesus taught that the mark of a Christian is observable love for all true believers. And he did that. Again, I'm going to mention this verse that I mentioned at the beginning, John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, when he said this, and I'm going to give it a little different twist. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Now, every Jew knew that this wasn't new because of of, of Leviticus 19.8, love your neighbor as yourself. What's different about this? The difference is this. The new commandment that we love one another, as I have loved you, as Jesus modeled it, that is what we are to model. Now, that's all a whole different spectrum of love. That's the Jesus way. That is way different than the human way. Because the human way is this, you love me, I love you. You treat me nice, I treat you nice. But you know what agape does? Agape love is all different. Agape love loves the unlovable. Agape love loves without expecting something in return. This is miracle love, okay? This is, you're not going to just do this because, okay, I have agape. No, you, you, this, is some, this is God working in you. This isn't you doing it on your own. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples. It's observable if you love one another. It's observable. We have love for one another. The question is, how does agape look in your life? And hopefully it's thick skin. How often are we just shattered because someone has said something a little off to us? Usually it's your mate, someone you care about, and you're shattered. Thick skin, soft heart, agape does not quit. Agape presses on. You got to have that in a marriage. Somehow, some way, you got to you, you can't muster it up. It's the spirit of God working in you to give you the ability to do the impossible. Because you're bringing two people into a relationship that are two depraved people trying to do undepraved stuff. That is what you're doing. You're bringing this together and you're hoping this thing works, and you have to have a lot of grace with one another. A lot of grace. Question, is your love for one another observable? Is your faith observable? Do people even know you are a Christ follower? Do they even know that? If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would there be any works in your life, or could they see the love for their fellow man in their life. Could you be convicted of this? Ask yourself the question. Remember, James says, genuine faith is observable. You will have deeds. You will have works. You will have love. You will have service. You will have obedience, just like Abraham did. Faith is obeying in spite of the consequences. I will trust in the Lord until I die. 
if they pass a law in this country one day that says Christianity is intolerant, you can only preach these words, then we must say no. We preach the whole counsel of God. And then we will have a chance to see whether our faith is true, regardless of the consequences. The question of the hour is, is your faith observable? Only you can answer that question, and those closest to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that you allowed us to study the Word. Thank you that the Holy Spirit has inspired the book of James, just like any other book. Thank you that he's teaching us that we are to live by faith. We believe by faith, but this faith is demonstrated by true works, by true deeds, by changed lives. That you ask us to live a life of sacrifice and service and obedience to you. Abraham was obedient to the point of sacrificing his son. Rahab was obedient to the point of risking her life to save the two Jewish spies. And Lord, may we be obedient to whatever you are calling us to do. May we not just blend with the culture, meld in with people around us so they barely know that there's any difference in us at all. But may we stand out. May people know that we are different because we serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we will not walk compromised on this earth. But we will trust you until we die. And may that be the heart of each person that is here. May we have observable faith that is a true faith. And may we hear one day these great words that everyone's thinking right now as I'm saying this, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That is what we desire to hear. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to hear your word today, and may it change our hearts. Apply this to each one of us, Lord. We're, we're right where we need it. In Jesus' name, amen.